Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network. I'm one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Julian Gil-Peterson, talking about their new book, Histories of the Transgender Child. Professor, how are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you? I am doing pretty well. Um, I'm really excited to talk about your book because uh, it's a... It's a topic that, and sort of how you write about it, that I don't think has really been delved into before. And it really gives a, I think, a unique perspective on sort of, you know, tr- not only the history of transgenderism in our country and sort of you go abroad as well, but also sort of it has a lot of meaning in our contemporary and like in the here and now. So I, I wanted to first talk, you know, a little bit about yourself, sort of. Um, what was your academic trajectory? How did you end up sort of uh, writing about this topic? And how did you come to this book in particular? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And it's, I, you know, somewhat of an odd answer. Um, in many ways, so sort of the framing and the opening gesture of the book is really to take a stance against this narrative that circulates today you know, relatively unchallenged that trans kids today are somehow a kind of brand new generation and, you know, by extension that they don't really have any history to their own. And so I have to say that the way I sort of fell into this research was confronting my own um, sort of internalization of that narrative. I myself hadn't really expected that trans kids had a history. And I was interested in, in trans history more broadly and in the history of medicalization of trans people and of queer people. And so I was sort of, you know, partway through a dissertation um, in that in that subject area. And I just started stumbling across a few whispers in the archive that seemed to suggest to me that there were children, um, you know, I think I was looking at documents from the 1960s, there were actually children, you know, being medicalized and who are also, you could sort of extrapolate identifying as trans, uh, you know, using the terminology back then, but that long ago. And it really just sort of piqued my interest um, because I sort of, you know, as you said, it's it's a kind of history that isn't really talked about. It's not, hasn't really been presented before. Um, and so to be honest, it sort of started as a hunch. I was curious. I wanted to find out more. Um, and after I finished my, my PhD, I had the chance to spend some time at the Kinsey Institute um, in Indiana in their, in their medical archives. And uh, to be honest, it was sort of a really interesting, the way the book sort of like, I sort of stumbled into it was I was looking through the boxes of correspondence um, from some of the sort of medical architects of the, of the medical model of transsexuality in the 1950s and 1960s. And I, you know, I wasn't new to archival research, but I was sort of, you know, confronted with this question, well, how am I going to look for trans kids? How am I going to find out if they're there? And I was reading these letters, just general correspondence. And, you know, one of the quirks about letter writing in the 20th century is people, if they're writing to someone for the first time, tend to put their age in in a letter of introduction. And so I started just sort of looking through <laughs> these letters and seeing if someone was over 21, I, I didn't read it because that was a medical age of consent. And if they're under 21, I read it. And through that, I found this whole treasure trove uh, of letters written by trans kids to doctors. And finding that archive really surprised me and and kind of blew the whole project open for me um sort of in the sense of wanting to account for well you know how do i how do i understand where these these young people are coming from how are they making sense of their own lives and how are they interacting with doctors and what does that tell us more broadly about uh the history of of sex and gender uh, across the 20th century so in some ways i sort of um fell into the project um 
precisely around the kind of central narrative that I take aim at in the introduction itself, but it was sort of a piecemeal process. And it's often the case, I think when you're doing archival research, the more you do, the better you get at having hunches about where to look next. And it sort of grew from there. Yeah. And, and I think it would be useful um, because I found uh, sort of this assertion very interesting, but in your introduction, you know, you state that that trans children have no history. You've already mentioned that in our conversation. And, you know, that that line struck me because it also rang familiar from sort of Michael Kimmel's work when he's talking about, you know, men and masculinity had no history, right? And But certainly you and Dr. Kimmel are talking about that in a little bit different ways. So I wonder what you, you know, exactly meant by that and why is that so significant to sort of the genesis of your project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's, you know, there's sort of two versions of it, right? I think just on the one hand, there's just no public sense of a history for trans children as a group of people. Um, You know, that's not surprising. There's not a lot of trans history out in the world, but there's not even necessarily a lot of understanding that trans children in particular have a history even inside the LGBTQ community. Um, and I think that that's, you know, sort of part and parcel of a larger way in which trans history is not recorded, it's suppressed, it's erased, it doesn't show up, it's denied. Um, often, you know, the further you go back in time, in particular, because the way people understood and lived in their transness in the past, you know, tends to be quite different than than some of the ways, you know, that we recognize that today. So of course, it's a little bit more complicated to do that kind of historical work and to recognize it in the past. But there's something more pernicious, I actually think, about this sort of denial of history right now. And and that, I think, has to do with the way that the media, especially, but this sort of public narrative, you know, around trans kids, they're very visible as a, a kind of figure right now, a very unrepresentative figure. So we're sort of given this vision of trans kids in in the media uh, that is, you know, a lot whiter, a lot more middle class and a lot more medicalized than most actual kids' lives. But that sort of equation that this is, that these are a brand new group of people that we've never encountered trans kids before is specifically used to politically sort of, I, I use the phrase infantilize them, you know, treat them as dependent, treat them as unable to advocate for themselves or to deny their self-knowledge about gender. And I see it used all the time, you know, even by sort of well-intentioned folks um, to set limits on what trans kids are allowed to do and how they're allowed to talk about themselves, certainly limit their access to medical care and other forms of transition and recognition, but also a really unfortunate overlap with a lot of anti-trans or trans-exclusionary forces that are, you know, growing, it seemed to be growing, at least in, in, in intensity at the current moment that are really taking aim at children. Um, because children are a lot easier to use sort of as political football than adults, because we don't give children, you know, the sort of equal access to the public sphere and equal access to, you know, speaking for themselves and for defending themselves. So I think that sort of sense of no history is coupled to a sense of this is all brand new and being treated as brand new is really a way to politically try to disenfranchise people. Yeah. And I, and I think also um, another really big part of your introduction was talking about how trans children were central to this sort of like medicalization of sex and gender. So, so what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. So this is sort of the broader argument of the book, right? On the one hand, I just want to establish that there were trans kids in the past. That feels like an important intervention. But more broadly, I want to tell an important story about how our very concepts, um, not only of transgender, but actually of sex and gender more broadly, are really strongly influenced by a whole century of research, really pretty harmful um, and dehumanizing research on children. So what I'm looking at is how sex and then later gender, because gender doesn't really emerge as a concept until the 1950s, but how these two ideas really are actually dependent on a concept that has to do with children. And that concept is plasticity. Um, We're sort of more familiar today, I think, with neuroplasticity, the presumed sort of plastic quality of the brain, the way it's able to adapt and change to input from the environment and sort of grow over time. But for a lot of the 20th century, um, plasticity was really framed 
through endocrinology, through the endocrine body, through hormones. And there was a lot of interest in the plasticity of sex and gender, which is to say how sex and gender grow and change in form as they grow. And so children became really important to this kind of research in in the medical sciences because we already understood children to be inherently developmental, you know, creatures, so to speak, you know, you can sort of, the, the, the kind of thesis was that you could watch sex or gender differentiation in real time by studying child development and studying, or even, you know, in utero, in utero development. And so what I argue is that, you know, when medicine sought to learn how to influence and alter or eventually change sex or change gender or allow for what we now call transition, but also a much broader range of medical techniques. That was actually really um, two groups of children, uh, intersex children and trans children that were of particular interest in that research because they seemed to sort of offer to these doctors and to these researchers a chance to actually see plasticity in, in, you know, in real life and sort of try to influence its trajectories. And so in that sense, I sort of want to make an argument that children are actually kind of this bedrock, um, not only of trans medicine, but actually more broadly, all forms of medicalization of sex and gender. And that this is kind of like a little bit of a sort of shadow history that we haven't really recognized because those children were never, you know, they were used for research, um, but they were actually often denied access to any kind of affirmative forms of care that they might have wanted. And, you know, in the case of intersex children kind of had, you know, forms of medicalization forced on them. And then many trans children were rejected from accessing um, forms of transition that they, you know, that they were really actively seeking out. But in some sense, I just sort of want to place children back at the heart of how we understand um, the medicalization and the pathologization of sex and gender. Yeah. And I, and I think that, um, centralization on children um, is very important. And another very important part of your argument is how this focus on plasticity is also racialized. So how how is that happening? And how is that, you know, uh, my next question is going to be kind of about the 19th century, but you start talking about how this also intersects with the like eugenics movement. Yeah, yeah. So plasticity is a very weird concept, right? I mean, I just said, you know, we see a lot of talk about neuroplasticity today. And, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, brain imaging studies going on and whatnot. But if you think about plasticity as a concept, I mean, it, it actually is kind of an invisible thing, right? I mean, you can't, you can't take your body uh, to any, you know, sort of imaging system and locate your plasticity. It's not really a part of the body. It's more a quality or, or a characteristic of the living body. Uh, that it, And you can see its sort of effects. Uh, you can see them, you know, and change over time, that kind of malleability or, um, you know, openness to transformation from inside and outside but can't really isolate it. And so uh, because of that, I, I sort of argued that plasticity needed some kinds of metaphors or some sort of figures that could help it sort of cohere and be more legible and more manipulable in the life sciences. And so, you know, child development was one of those metaphors, but also plasticity, I argue, ends up being racialized in a couple of different ways in order to make it do things, right? And so one of the ways that it's racialized is... Uh, in a really abstract kind of non-visible way, plasticity gets equated with whiteness, where whiteness really means um, that uh, the ability of a body to be transformed and to be changed, to take on new forms, is associated with with white bodies as the so-called you know, according to this this scientific discourse, the so-called most evolved or the so-called most civilized. Um, and that kind of really, it's a really, it's quite a highly abstract concept. So if you go and, you know, look at a lot of this, this research, it doesn't necessarily need to ever talk about white people or whiteness. But when you look at who actually gets access to this new medical model, it's overwhelmingly, you know, uh, being made available to, to white white bodies, whereas uh, black bodies and bodies of color are often rejected from the medical model for sort of not being plastic enough and therefore not being deserving enough of these of these kinds um, of new uh, medical interventions. So it's a sort of, it's a very abstract form of racialization, but for that reason, I actually think it's 
you know, even more <laughs> insidious. It's harder to detect than some of the other kinds of racialization that we're used to talking about, but it nevertheless had very visible, very obvious effects in gender clinics because as soon as they start opening, there's a lot of gatekeeping around race that, um, you know, only welcomes in mostly white uh, trans bodies on the premise that they they can be, you know, remade, so to speak, in the eyes of doctors, whereas um, black trans kids in particular that I look at in my book are often rejected from that medical model because they're not, they're not uh, equated, you know, conceptually with this idea of plasticity. Yeah. And, you know, you talked, you mentioned the metaphors that were sort of prevalent during this time. And another interesting thing that you point out um, that was happening during sort of the 19th century or the latter half or latter part of the 19th century is this guiding principle, you know, within sort of the medical research community of life's natural bisexuality. And I thought that was really interesting. And I was wondering if you could, you know, explain what that was and how did that play into, you know, this broader history that you're trying to tell? Yeah, I think it's really fascinating. And, you know, it's 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 one of these concepts that, you know, I mean, it it never really well, it made it outside of medicine a bit, but it really fell out of fashion. And it's very different than how we think today, right? I mean, you know, there's such a strong emphasis, right, these days on the division between sex and gender, you know, on the one hand. Um, and there's a lot more, there are ways of thinking about categories like non-binary or gender fluidity or gender queer that are really interesting and fascinating. But it's interesting to know that only a hundred years ago, and, you know, going back a little bit further, the real scientific consensus was that no one was really a man or a woman, but that everyone was naturally, you know, as ordained by nature, what then was called bisexual. And, and, and that word, of course, didn't mean at all what it means today. It meant that, you know, all human life and, you know, according to some biologists, sort of all animal life um, starts out you know, originally with the potential to become either sex and the course of sexual differentiation or development, you know, allows one sex to become predominant over the other, at least visually. But actually, it was very strongly believed that no one really ever lost the capacity to become the other sex, that it's sort of stored latent um, inside, you know, sort of deep within, and that this was sort of an evolutionary holdover, according to some biologists. And, you know, there's a way that that sort of manifests, which is throughout the 19th century, especially the latter half, a lot of early research that, you know, we might later call endocrinological was really done on animals trying to activate their latent bisexuality. So a lot of, um, you know, hens and chickens or rats and guinea pigs had their gonads removed. And, you know, scientists were interested in how, okay, so if you take the gonads out of, um, you know, a hen it seems to undergo a kind of sex change and become a rooster and not only physiologically, but also in its behavior. Um, and there were sort of transplantation um, experiments and other, other sorts of attempts to influence that bisexuality that was understood to be intrinsic to animal life by modifying the circulation of hormones inside the body. And that's sort of how, you know, the concept of hormones and sex sort of come into view it's first through research on animals, but there's quite very quickly a sort of leap in an analogy to human beings. So you have, um, you know, Darwin, for instance, in, in his book on the domestication of plants and animals, you know, sort of reviews this research, this history of experimenting on birds, and just says, you know, we also assume that there is an equal latent potential for a kind of sex change in humans as well, though it obviously had never been observed happening. Um, but this sort of concept that no one is really a man or a woman, right? That wasn't, it was not, um, a sort of prompt for a very progressive utopian politics of gender fluidity by any means. It, it certainly still supported really awful normative binary kinds of thinking, but it's just interesting to note that really, I would say probably up until the 1940s, that was still really the dominant way of thinking in science that, well, actually no one's really a man or a woman. And that put a lot of pressure um, as you have intersex and trans people both being medicalized and seeking out medicine because their demands for, for, for ethical access to medical care and medical support, you know, often sort of 
put a lot of pressure on the appropriateness of a sex binary at all, because, you know, you had sort of doctors interested on the one hand, well, some people, you know, really do seem to be a so-called mix of male and female, or that's how they thought about it. Um, and yet at the same time, there's this sort of push to try and reassert a binary. Um, and so that sort of concept of natural bisexuality the other thing I say about it is I think it's sort of the precursor of plasticity. It's sort of that concept that, well, all sex is a little bit mixed anyways. All, and now I think we talk about this more in the sense that, well, gender is a little bit fluid early on in life for everyone or something like that, right? But that sort of idea sort of gets transferred over into the concept of plasticity that then ends up, then ends up really reshaping how um, sex and gender and trans people aren't medicalized. Yeah, and I, and I think that's an uh, important thing to note in this history because, it, you know, like you said, it sort of affects also narratives that we're having today. Um, mm-hmm. So once we sort of propel ourselves into the early 20th century, what was, what was happening in terms of the medicalization of uh, trans kids in particular, and how was trans life existing, quote-unquote, before this medical discourse would later define it? Mm, That's a great question and a great way of putting it. Um, You know, one of the things I wanted to do in this book was go back before 1950, um, because 1950 is often sort of the starting point even in 20th century trans history, because the 1950s is when we see the emergence of the medical model that we sort of still live under today, which at that time was called transsexuality. But it's also the time that trans people are quite visible in the media through folks like Christine Jorgensen, um, you know, sort of one of the first celebrity trans women in the United States that sort of brings a lot of attention to um to, to trans people. So if you go back before that, it's really interesting because it really complicates our sort of sense of that history. Um, and so there's sort of a couple of things happening, I think, in the early 20th century. There's a lot of research going on. So I spend quite a bit of time in the book focusing at, on the Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, which is sort of one of the major hospitals um, during the 20th century for the medicalization of sex and gender in, in, in general. Um, and then in the 60s is one of the first places that a gender clinic opens. But if you go back earlier, um, what I look at is how actually intersex children were experimented upon for many, many decades, you know, really from about the 19-teens through to the 50s, uh, in order to really operationalize that plasticity I was talking about, to figure out how to actually do things with it in the clinic through, at first, just sort of plastic surgical kinds of procedures, because there weren't any, you know, real usefully synthesized hormones. But then by the 1930s, and 40s especially, there start to be, and so then as well through hormone therapies. And so it's like at this time that some of the actual medical techniques and protocols that would later get transferred into the medical model of transsexuality are under construction. But they're under construction in a really kind of horrifying way. They're being un, you know, often non-consensually, uh, coercively imposed on newborns, infants, and young children, sometimes without even their knowledge, in order to forcibly assign intersex children a sex or a visually binary sex. And of course, you know, aside from all of the unethical aspects of you know forcing that on you know young people who aren't old enough to even know what's going on or give permission, or sometimes aren't even told, you know, there's nothing actually medically necessary about having a visually binary looking sex. So it's a lot of, a lot of um, experimentation that, you know, really causes a lot of harm and, and didn't really necessarily need to happen, but that's sort of ongoing. And so what happens at the same time is, you know, some trans folks are hearing that, Oh, okay. At Johns Hopkins, you know, children are like, for lack of a better phrase, changing sex. That's really interesting. And you start to see, uh, especially in the 1930s, some trans adults who were very well read, who had sought out kind of medical knowledge, however they could, showing up at Hopkins and very hesitantly trying to sort of use that intersex language because they saw it as a great way to get the attention of doctors and try to convince doctors that they were actually intersex and therefore they should be allowed to transition. And from very, very early on, 
the doctors at Hopkins start to gatekeep that and try really hard not to provide medical care to trans people. And so this is an interesting point of difference between some of what we know elsewhere in the world and the United States. So we have some kind of sense that in Europe, but especially in Germany, in Berlin, um, you know, there were a group of sexologists often identified with Magnus Hirschfeld that were providing forms of transition and care to trans people as early as the 1920s. Um, and sometimes elsewhere in, in Europe, you know, the case of Lily Elba became, you know, much more prominent after um, that movie, The Danish Girl, came out a few years ago. But, you know, we sort of have a sense that in Europe, okay, there are some communities of trans folks that are finding um, allies, you know, amongst clinicians and are getting access to certain forms of transition as early as the 20s um, and then a little bit in the 30s before obviously World War II uh, really, you know, puts a huge interruption on that. But in the US, it's a little bit different. It seems that a lot of American doctors just wanted to reject and refuse trans people's requests for medical support and were very interested in keeping them away and keeping them out of having access to some of these new medical techniques that they were themselves developing to force onto intersex children. And so within all of that mix, I sort of try to look and see, okay, what about trans kids? And it really seems that there aren't many kids being medicalized in the first half of the 20th century. And that's not surprising, you know, that the techniques, medical techniques were relatively new. There aren't that many trans people seeking them out in general. And you really had to be in the know to find out about, you know, different surgical procedures or even hormones as they were becoming available. But what I did find in the archive were just sort of quiet mentions here and there about trans childhoods, especially in the 1930s and 40s, that sort of um, passed without any need for medicine at all which is really wonderful because it sort of helps to illustrate and substantiate the fact that trans people, including kids, don't need medicine to know they're trans. They don't need to have access to medicine to understand themselves as trans or to live as trans. So there are a couple of um, children from the, especially the 1930s and 40s that I talk about early on in the book um, who sort of had different ways to be socially recognized as boys and girls. So um, one example I have is... Um, a trans boy who lived in rural New York state who dropped out of school because being forced to go to school as a girl was just so traumatizing and unlivable. And he ended up um, working, you know, in a mill and sort of through that kind of labor context of having a job associated with men and, you know, dressing and living as a man found recognition during his teenage years and was able to live that way, you know, without needing to to have to go to a doctor or be diagnosed or anything. Um, I also talk about um, a young girl who lived in rural, very rural Wisconsin. And around 1930, you know, she had been living as a girl at home with her family for a couple of years. They were perfectly willing to let her live as a girl uh, full time. But it became time for her to go to school. The parents who were friendly with the local county judge and folks who helped run the school got permission for her to attend school as a girl. And, you know, there's a little bit of detail in some of the archival records about her that, you know, she was allowed to use the girls' restroom and she was allowed to join the 4-H club and do sort of girls' activities. And that, you know, from what we can tell, classmates treated her, you know, as a girl and treated her fairly and she wasn't, you know, bullied too much. Um, and so it's these kind of amazing, um, you know, small snippets, but really, I think, profound evidence that um, people were were living, you know, as what we might call trans, though they didn't have to have a word to, to necessarily identify. And they certainly didn't need to have access to a medical model that was still very much under construction. And as we sort of see from the case of those adults who did try to go to places like Hopkins, you know, who weren't actually getting access to that anyways. So the U.S. is sort of in a different position, I think, than what we've thought about um, for that part of the century, which has largely been framed in reference to places in Europe like Germany. Yeah. And, you know, I... I found the part uh, of your book on Germany and the German context really interesting because I know that in, I think it's relatively new still, but a, a Netflix show called Babylon Berlin, which is set in sort of early 20th century Berlin, 
um, there are trans characters, right? So you're starting to see also um, this sort of idea, this history seeping into popular culture, albeit, you know, really slowly. Um, so mm-hmm. now that we're in sort of the, the 20th century and we get to the 1950s, which, as you brought up before, is sort of where previous histories of trans folks have usually started. Um, why was it that when we reached the 1950s, sex was in crisis and sort of gender was thus created? Yeah, yeah. That's sort of the way I try to reframe the 50s. And it's in part because I have some discomfort with how uh, even scholars in trans studies have talked about the 1950s. It often gets talked about like this huge moment of a paradigm shift. And that's, you know, how we often talk about the post-war era too, you know the atom bomb explodes and, you know, Christine Jorgensen is on the front page of every newspaper around the world. You know, the United States is, you know, rising to global ascendancy. The Cold War is starting. There are a lot of technological advances. Okay, sure. There's a lot going on in the 50s. Um, But I've often felt uncomfortable with the way in which that sort of presumes precisely what I was just, you know, using the early 20th century to argue against a kind of techno determinism or a kind of sense that trans people don't exist until there's like the right technology to make them possible, right? Until transition as we understand it today becomes available. And that's just not true. Trans people well precede any, you know, access or any technology of transition that we would recognize today. But it is true that something happens in the 50s. And like you just said, I argue that the category of sex right, which had been really reshaped by all of this research on plasticity was kind of in a place of crisis. Now, that was sort of a crisis that was like restricted to, you know, research institutions. (laughs) I don't think it was a full-fledged like, you know, society-wide crisis, but there was a problem because plasticity on the one hand had provided such a powerful material reach into the human body and had really allowed, um, researchers, scientists, and doctors to actually, for the first time, alter in an intentional way the human body and human sex. But it had also kind of opened the door to the idea that, well, if sex is really just plastic, then it's not necessarily binary naturally, right? Um, And, you know, there's also a sort of larger question about sort of how do you medicalized plasticity because plasticity itself you know when you try to do things with it 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 doesn't necessarily obey very well it's not a very um predictable quality of the of the human body and so clinicians were also really frustrated that a lot of their attempts to force intersex children into a binary sex or as um, trans medicine starts to force trans people to have only the most binary transitions didn't always take because the body just doesn't obey binaries that well. And there's nothing you can really do about that. So I, sex was sort of a little bit in crisis, you know, I think by the time 1950 rolls around, because it was less and less clear why anyone should think that binary sex was actually natural or ideal. And especially as trans people were increasingly demanding access to medical care, they were really also throwing into question uh, a lot of the normalizing and normative ideas that those clinicians had. And so that's the context in which I argue gender, this concept that really did not exist before, comes into play to help reorganize and try and sort of retrench the binary. And this is sort of the moment where that older concept of natural bisexuality dies. Um, And, you know, there are a bunch of different people involved in the creation of gender as a category, but, you know, one of the most famous who I talk about a lot in the book is the psychologist and sexologist John Money, who worked at Hopkins. You know, Money originally gets hired to work um, with the intersex children, you know, at, at the, at the uh, children's uh, hospital unit there. And really, you know, continues this research that had been ongoing for a while trying to assign binary sex to, to intersex young, young people and infants. Um, but money's sort of uh, intervention is to really kind of reframe uh, intersex people as not actually a mix of male and female, um, but actually as underdeveloped or unfinished in their development. And that's sort of the 
The only sort of way money can move the goalposts, he doesn't find what causes gender, despite claiming that for lots of his career, he was never able to figure that out, he doesn't figure out what causes people, you know, to sexually differentiate one way or the other, there's just too many variables involved. So he changes the terms of the conversation instead and says, well, if you don't appear to be, you know, legibly binary in your sex and gender, you'll experience social stigma. And so that to him justifies the sort of goal of binary normalization. And he recasts anything less than, you know, binary sex and gender as unfinished, as developmentally incomplete. Um, And so that's sort of what gives gender its sort of traction is it allows, you know, for the question of the social you know, the question of recognition, the question of identity to come into play. And it becomes a little bit less about the physical body in the sense that the physical body can just be, you know, sort of um, mobilized to try and um, conform to some sort of binary outcome. So I sort of argue that Money's project is really to sort of create this new concept that's going to allow for a much stronger case for reinforcing the binary. And that there's actually, you know, it doesn't have to be anything medically necessary about intervening into an intersex body or a trans body. It's just now about preventing social stigma. Um, and so that's sort of, I think, the ruse that that gender gets us into, but it also sort of signals a moment of closure and retrenchment where we do see a tightening up of what it, what the possibilities are for being sexed, um, because gender is sort of used um, actually, you know, very differently than how feminists or um, queer activists or trans activists would use it today. It's really used as a kind of normalizing device. Yeah, and I thought that point in particular is, you know, really interesting, because I think, you know, folks that might not be as familiar with sort of the origin of gender as a concept might not know that. And I think that is important to know when sort of, you know, talking about gender studies writ large, that, you know, in fact, it was sort of this, as you say, this a way to sort of retrench the binary. (laughs) So, so with all that going on in the 1950s, What then begins to happen to trans children once we reach the 60s? Yeah, things really start to take on a different direction. I think once you get this new medical model of transsexuality, you know, it is the thing that is new about transsexuality uh, as a medical field is it's this whole field of medicine dedicated exclusively to trans people. That is new. That had not happened yet in the United States. And the U.S. is quite late in in, in setting this up and providing access. So, you know, Christine Jorgensen famously, right, has to go to Europe, has to go to Denmark to get access to gender uh, confirmation surgery because no one in the U.S. was willing to provide it. And so by the time the 50s roll around, I mean, there's not a lot going on then, but by the 60s, you start to have some clinics opening. Um, And that gives children a lot more access. So basically, the moment, the vocabulary and the term of transsexual is available, you start to see children claiming it in the first person. And that's where, you know, for instance, this archive of letters that they wrote to clinicians is so interesting um, because a lot of these letters, you know, open with, you know, you might have a 14-year-old or 15-year-old saying, I am a transsexual. This is what a transsexual is. I understand what that term is and it describes me. So you sort of have, um, you know, young people immediately claiming this term for themselves, right? And I think really challenges our sort of sense that, you know, children, you know, didn't identify as trans until very recently. No, they're very, very, very clearly claiming the term in the first person in the 1960s. And that is different than, you know, what I was talking about earlier in the early 20th century, you know, can read some children as trans back then, but they weren't, you know, claiming a term for themselves. By the 60s, you do really see that. And so there sort of starts to be, I think, two sort of trends in the clinical interactions that they have. You know, on the one hand, you know, these kids are of huge interest to a lot of these clinicians who are setting up the field of trans medicine, because again, they offer that sort of access to plasticity. And they offer the promise of an etiology or an origin to transsexuality. So you you have all these clinicians who are working really hard, you know, they think to try and, you know, legitimize this field, but they can't explain what makes people trans. Of course, they never figured that out. And I don't think we ever will figure that out. But they're really, you know, 
sort of dogged by that question because they know if they could answer it, it would really sort of legitimize the work they want to do. So they're very interested in working with children if they can, but not really to support them or affirm their gender or their transitions. It's really just to, again, use them as these sort of experimental test cases. So you have a couple of places where um, some clinicians are willing to work with kids, whether it's at Hopkins or, you know, private practices, you know, as kind of experimental cases, but they very rarely really give children very much access to what they're asking for and kind of dismiss pretty much everything they say or, you know, sort of uh, all the self-knowledge they have about themselves. But then at the same time, you also have um, the formation of a kind of reparative or conversion therapy camp that, you know, really was quite, becomes quite dominant and, you know, only in the last few years has started to be supplanted. And so for those folks, they're interested again in children because they think children are still plastic enough that you could try to extinguish their transness in childhood to prevent them from growing up to be trans. And so one of the major places that that kind of work happened in the U.S. was at the University of California, Los Angeles. And I spent some time talking about that in the 60s, um, especially, but into the early 70s. They had this sort of wide-ranging clinic that saw all sorts of kids. You know, some were trans, you know, some were probably gay and lesbian. But in any case, they they really practiced a lot of psychotherapeutic techniques that were really sort of brutal and awful to try and stop kids from identifying as trans and try to force them to grow up to be, you know, what we would now call cisgender. And they never worked, you know, none of those psychotherapeutic techniques ever worked. They, they were just really abject failures. And so ironically, that clinic at UCLA starts to realize, okay, we can't seem to force kids to not be trans. And especially by the time they're teenagers or they're going through puberty, they just seem completely immune to this therapy. So let's start giving them hormones and let's start allowing them to transition. Let's, you know, get their documents changed and talk to their schools. And even in some cases, get them, you know, in line for surgery. So the 60s sort of sees, you know, kind of two, I think, contradictory movements. On the one hand, you know, there's a greater access to medicine because of this new medical model. But, you know, that access is premised on just the most vicious kind of gatekeeping. And so you see a lot of attempts to really actually, uh, to do conversion therapy, uh, you know, and some of it was pretty horrific at other places that might have involved, you know, forms of electroshock or other really, really violent forms of therapy. And then, you know, when that doesn't work, okay, fine, you can transition. And then on the other hand, the clinicians who were at least in theory more welcoming and were willing to take kids on as patients without necessarily sub- subjecting them to conversion therapy, just didn't really tend to ever listen to them or actually allow them to transition in the way that they wanted to. So it's sort of um, a bittersweet decade, you know, on the one hand, you really see children claiming space for themselves and trying their best to negotiate with clinicians. But every time clinicians are willing to, you know, give time to trans kids, it's always premised on some sort of bargain where they have to give something up about themselves, or they have to be willing to be subjected to, you know, attempts at actually, you know, invalidating their identities or, or sort of, you know, trying to erase them completely out of existence. Yeah. And so once we get to the 1970s, you you kind of start out that chapter by saying, you know, there's a way that both uh, researchers within sort of like queer theory and then also within trans studies as disciplines have gotten a bit wrong about this period of time in terms of the history of trans people. So mm-hmm. what exactly was happening in the 70s and what did those two fields sort of get a little bit wrong? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? The closer we get to the 21st century, the closer we get to some kind of you know, informal narrative about the history of trans kids, you know, and there's, and a lot of that starts in 1980, because in 1980, the DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, third edition, includes entries on gender identity disorder, and gender identity disorder of childhood, um, as well as transsexualism. But these are the first times that trans categories are put into the DSM, which, you know, of course, especially in the US, allows for, 
you know, at least the, in theory, you know, access to medical care that might be covered by insurance. But in any case, um, you know, in queer theorists and some folks in trans studies um, kind of seized on that, you know, in 1980, there's a way in which some of those diagnoses were used, um, especially to try and pathologize proto-gay children. And that's something that queer theory was concerned with in the 1990s. Um, and looking at how actually in the 70s, right, homosexuality had been demedicalized, had been taken out of the DSM, thanks to the work of gay activists. And so there's this sort of argument that while clinicians were no longer allowed to pathologize gay people outright, they turned to gender in childhood as a way to keep trying to pathologize homosexuality sort of, you know, you know, by proxy. And that's true, but there were also a lot of trans kids targeted um, by that diagnosis. Gender identity disorder of childhood was not created specifically to pathologize gay children. It was created specifically for trans children, though it was used for both. So I'm sort of trying to complicate that narrative. And so the 1970s is a really interesting time because um, it's before that DSM. When that DSM-3 comes out, it really kind of rigidifies access to trans medicine. And I actually think it really sort of was another retrenchment, you know, actually really decreased the amount of trans people who are able to access care. And so the 70s is sort of interesting because it's kind of this high tide moment when there's quite a lot of access, you know, relative to the couple of decades on, you know, on either side of it. And so in that chapter, I actually specifically try to look at the case of trans boys, um, in part because, you know, trans masculinity has been less visible in in trans history. It was less visible, I think, at the time. It was less visible to clinicians who were always much more obsessed with trans women and trans femininity and really never, they just really often couldn't figure out what to think about trans men and trans masculinity, even if they knew lots of trans men and had lots of trans masculine patients. Um, and so I look at, I look at a you know, trans boys in the 70s, because also, it's sort of been presumed that there not only were there no trans boys in the 70s, because like I said earlier, we presumed there weren't trans kids in the past, but it's also been presumed that, um, you know, because of the the sort of uh, later border war, so to speak, between trans masculinity and butch lesbian masculinity, that folks would have identified as lesbian in the 70s. You know, there are plenty of, of people for whom that was true, they did identify, you know, as young people, as lesbians in the 70s and later grew up to be to be transmasculine or identify as trans. But there also just were trans boys in the 70s who didn't really have any preoccupation with being um, potentially lesbian or identified as lesbian. And so in that chapter, I just sort of try to look at um, what that does for how we understand, you know, our relationship to these categories of sexuality and gender if really things don't actually line up the way we've been talking about them. Um, for the last 20 years, certainly in in queer theory, especially. Um, but now that transgender studies is sort of its own, you know, relatively independent field, um, it's sort of a good time, I think, to revisit, revisit some of that. Yeah, and I think, you know, all of that and sort of certainly some of the concepts and ideas we talked about before have a lot of impact on as you as you have been saying sort of our contemporary thought around mm -hmm. uh trans folks in general and you kind of posed your conclusion you, you know you title it how to bring up your kids uh, how to bring your kids up trans right so why did you pick that as sort of your um conclusion structure and mm -hmm. so sort of what recommendations or what thoughts did you come up with yeah, so the title itself is sort of a riff on a classic Eve Sedgwick essay, How to Bring Your Kids Up Gay, which is actually about the way that proto-gay children were pathologized in the 1980s by gender identity disorder of childhood diagnoses. And, you know, in the previous chapter, I sort of pushed back on Sedgwick to point out that she really missed all the trans kids that were also being pathologized. But, you know, I sort of take inspiration from her, right, that, um, you know... <laughs> And, and, and honestly, you know, this is a work of history, but for me, the stakes, the political stakes, the epistemological investment of what I'm doing is all about its orientation to the present world, not just because trans kids 
you know, have been denied a history, but because they're hyper visible in this moment. And we have so few counter narratives to challenge the way that we are being told is the only way to sort of bring your kids up trans today, which is this highly medicalized uh, narrative that's just super unrepresentative. You know, the kinds of trans kids that we might encounter in the media you know, like in documentaries or in journalistic exposés or on TV shows or in film or, or, or whatnot, you know, they're much whiter and much richer um, than the majority of trans kids. And their their lives are often narrated exclusively through these medical narratives that circulate around, you know, puberty suppression or hormones or whatnot. Um, and that's just not actually what most trans kids' lives are like. And it's a narrative that's just been reasserting the authority of medicine. And given how awful the history of medicine has been for trans kids, I find that, you know, a really sort of um, frustrating situation in which to find ourselves. And so the conclusion for me is sort of trying to think about, okay, what are some of the lessons that we can take away from this history to try and proliferate the narratives we have access to today? And I think one of the big things, one of my big takeaways from this book is that, you know, children have really been equated with the concept of plasticity. You know, trans kids have only been of interest to medical science insofar as they grant access to plasticity. They've never been treated as people. They've never been given the opportunity to express their own desire over what their gender is or what transition might look like. They've certainly never been authorized to direct their own medical care. And so I really think we have not gotten to a place where we've learned to listen to trans kids. Uh, And I think that's a real, you know, even though there is a lot of movement right now in the medical model, it's moved much more towards an affirmative model that is not about normalizing or binary transition as much as it is about supporting, you know, young people's transition. I still don't think we're anywhere near close enough to being able to actually let trans kids um, self-determine or self-actualize, you know, their gender, or where we just allow trans children to have their own genders, for that to belong just to them. You know, we're so used to, with you know, as with many things with children, seeing their lives as the property of adults. Uh, and I would love to see what it would be like if we didn't think of children's gender as belonging to adults, whether parents you know, schools, the state, medicine, you know, that we could allow children, you know, collective and and self-forms of determination. But I also think there's a sort of broader lesson here that we can't pin our hopes on the medical model because it's so normalizing still. And also because medicine is just so highly stratified in this country, you know, through class and race. And so the other sort of larger arc of the book that I maybe haven't talked enough about today is how you know, over the course of the 20th century, one of the other things I'm tracking is how Black trans kids and trans kids of color are sort of have a built-in exclusion from this medical model because of the concept of plasticity. I think I maybe mentioned that earlier. They're read as not plastic enough, not deserving enough of this kind of care. And that's still reverberating up to today, right? So, you know, Black trans kids and trans kids of color are seen as less trans, have much harder time accessing medical care, are much more likely to be subject to other disciplinary institutions at school or in the school to prison pipeline. And, you know, the other concerns that they might have in their lives um, that don't necessarily revolve around you know, the kinds of narratives we get in the media about like puberty suppression or whatnot are totally neglected from how we talk about trans kids because that category itself has been made so white. Uh, and it's it's understandable that it has sort of in light of this longer history of plasticity, but that I think is sort of a really huge problem that we face right now. And so I sort of wrap up the book with a kind of call that I think is is small, but but very profound because I, I feel I feel we're very far away from it. And that's a call to us adults to learn, to try and understand what it would be like to desire for children to just be trans. That trans kids are not a group of people we have to accept and tolerate because they exist, but that they are a group of people we want to exist and that we are happy and excited to affirm and love that children can be trans and that to be a trans child is not only possible, but desirable rather than a tragedy or a difficult problem or something to be fixed. Um, 
you know, that, that, that would be really, I think, a very, very profound shift in how our culture uh, understands gender and childhood. But it would be one that would necessitate a lot of these sort of radical overturnings of these major gatekeeping institutions that are still highly involved in regulating and managing trans kids' lives. Yeah, and I, and I was just thinking about, you know, it's either documentaries or sort of specials they do on news programs. You know, usually the climax or sort of the the happy ending that's portrayed is you now get access to those either hormones or the surgery, right? It's sort of like that is seen as the victory of yeah. like, here is your access now to this medical model. So I think your call to sort of reframe, you know, what what are we taking as sort of like our victory or like our climax of, you know, that person's life should be sort of reframed. Um, and I know I've taken up a lot of your time today. So I, I just want to wrap up sort of with a two part question. And I know you had talked a little bit before about sort of a, a takeaway from your book, but mm-hmm. what would be if, if folks sat down and read this book, which I really encourage them to do, what would be that one takeaway you hope they get from that? Mm. That's a tough question. Um, I think, I think it would be to, to sort of reflect critically on precisely this question of how can you in your own life, you know, think about the ways that you could, you know, learn to, to shift your thinking about trans childhood, you know, sort of away from these, these narratives that we're being fed today and towards really doing the hard work of trying to learn to listen and imagine what it would take for us to be able to uh, listen to trans kids' desires and needs and serve as advocates for them and supporters of them rather than as parents for them or as people in charge of their lives, but rather people who would be learning to support them and respect their right to be trans. That I think would be the real takeaway. And I mentioned this sort of, you know, in the preface to the book too, but what would be the, the children have suffered so much because it's so easy for us to reduce children to a question of etiology that, oh, trans kids are going to tell us where transness comes from or where gender comes from. Well, how could, how could we learn and practice just accepting their transness and taking it at face value, not interrogating it, not asking where it comes from, not asking if it's real or not real, not asking if it's going to change over time or what it means, but just according it our full respect and, and affirmation. I think that would be, that is something that everyone can learn to do. Um, and it's something that, you know, that might take time and, you know, for it to, to happen at a broader scale. But I think it's something that's sort of urgently needed to take trans kids seriously and respect who they are rather than question it again and again. Yeah, and I think that's a an excellent excellent takeaway. Um, and final final question for you, um, Professor, if if folks read your book and they're you know really interested and they want to learn more about either this topic or sort of adjacent topics, what are sort of three three or so books that you could recommend them to check out? Yeah, that's a bit of a tricky thing um, because as, you know so far. Mine is the only book that that gives you a history of trans kids, but um, there are other great books out there. If you're more interested in in transgender history, just an amazing, very readable, very accessible, and um, pretty comprehensive and interesting book is Susan Stryker's book Transgender History, you know, which came out I guess ten years ago now, but it's just a fantastic primer with really great um, historical detail that gives you. A, a taste of actually a lot of the things that I've talked about with you today, but um, sort of point you in all of the different directions that they might go. So that would be one. Um, if you're interested in, you know, trans kids today and learning more about, you know, sort of what's going on in the present, I'd highly recommend uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Anne Travers's book, The Trans Generation, which came out uh, last year from NYU Press, is a fantastic book. 
uh, ethnographic book that really does some of the hard work of breaking through that narrative we're being fed today and looking at trans childhoods for different racialized and economic class uh, groups um, in North America and Canada and the U.S. And then maybe, you know, a more, uh, maybe the nerdiest recommendation I can give, but I think a really fantastic companion book to mine is um, Kyla Schuler's book, The Biopolitics of Feeling, which came out from Duke last year, which does some of the heavy lifting around um, race and uh, sexual difference in the 19th century. And Kyla's book um, is a really amazing account that I really understand as uh, sort of an ally of my book in trying to rethink forms of racialization and try to, I think both of us are sort of interested in arguing that sex and gender are actually kind of historically derivatives of race, of race um, and of racism rather than sort of independent categories that only come to intersect later. So that one, I think, provides a sort of wonderful, um, rich historical landscape for sort of the century that, that happens prior to the one that I'm talking about. Well, those all sound really great. Um, and I want to thank you again for joining us again. The book is called Histories of the Transgender Child. Uh, Dr. Julian Gill-Peterson, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a delight to talk about this.